Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals. Uh, I'm your host, Dayton Martindale. Um, and yeah, this is a Green New Podcast where we use books to make sense of the ecological crisis. Uh, today's guest is the author of a new book, The Book of Minds, How to Understand Ourselves and Other Beings from Animals to AI to Aliens. Um, and the author of that is science writer Philip Ball. Um, and yeah, it's a great conversation that I had with Philip. It was really fun. Um, it's a fun book. Consciousness has been something I've been interested in for a while now, but maybe a year and a half ago, um, decided to dig deeper and I read a number of books about, you know, theories of how consciousness could have arisen and, and when and how. And, um, you know, I read books and articles and listened to podcasts from physicists, neuroscientists, uh, philosophers, of course, um, and what struck me both is that it's a really interesting field and one where we really don't know the answers. Um, and that's something that's refreshing about Philip's book is that um, while he has his opinions and he shares some of them both in the book and here, um, he's also just exploring the range of ideas that people have about minds and consciousness. Um, he's not necessarily, you know, hawking his personal idea. Uh, so it's a, it's a really refreshing and fun conversation and a fun book to read um, just to explore this range of ideas people have about something that really is mysterious. Um, when I talk about consciousness and minds, uh, what I'm asking is sort of why matter, which seems to be physical stuff, um, also, at least in some formations, at least in some life forms it seems, um, has thoughts and feelings and subjective experiences that go along with that. Um, I, I, to me, that's just one of the great mysteries in the world. And it's also something with, um, transcendent moral implications because, you know, if we didn't have these feelings, then maybe it wouldn't really morally matter what we do to each other. Um, but we do. And so figuring out what kinds of beings that we are and what kinds of beings other animals are and, and potentially future AI or, or extraterrestrials you might encounter or, or whatever. But but just knowing what kinds of beings that we are and the other uh, creatures are helps us, I believe, to figure out how morally we interact with each other um, and knowing and making our best guesses about what sorts of beings are... Uh, are sentient, are conscious, um, you know, I think informs which beings that we should be most kind to morally. Um, but I also think the fact that we don't really know uh, leads me anyway to at least sort of a default respect for um, for all life, for all creatures, perhaps for all um, all matter. All uh, I'm inclined to use the, the phrase all creation, although I, my, my own views are, are secular, but... Um, just everything that is, um, I think, takes on just a, a bit more enchantment or a bit more mystery or a bit more dignity. I don't know what the right word is um, to me anyway, because some of it became conscious. Some of it came to think and feel and, and yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm rambling now, but um, I just kind of want to preface this conversation with um, that sort of moral background, because most of the conversation actually isn't about the, the ethics and morals of it all. It's more about what are our best guesses? How do we get there? Um, how did you know nervous systems evolve? Um, and it's it's really fascinating. I, I learned a lot from the book. I learned a lot from from talking to Philip, and, and wish I could have talked with him even longer. But 
yeah, I, I will let you uh, listen to him, hopefully with um, some sense of the moral import of it all, at least in the back of your minds. So, some quick housekeeping stuff before we um, get to the interview. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, subscribe, etc. Um, I have a, a free weekly newsletter you can sign up for. That's a, There's a link for that in the, the show notes. Um, you can also support this podcast financially at patreon.com slash storytelling pod. That's patreon.com slash storytelling pod. Uh, the lowest level there is $4 a month. Uh, you know, that's basically roughly a dollar an episode. Um, you know, I, I hope that uh, at least some of you consider it because, um, yeah, I, I put a lot of time and effort into this podcast and I, I wish I could put more time and effort and I wish I could invest in uh, you know, a better website, a, a better audio and stuff like that. Um, I'm doing the best I can with the budget I have, with the time I have, and with your support, I can increase those. Um, without your support, uh, you know, frankly, this wouldn't be possible. If there were no supporters, I, I probably would have quit by now. Um, so yeah, we also have a podcast book club. Um, the Storytelling Animals Book Club next meeting is... Tuesday, August 23rd, to discuss As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock by Dina Julia Whitaker. Um, it's a, a short book about, yeah, about um, indigenous history of environmental justice, what environmental justice and injustice is meant for indigenous people, and how environmentalists um, today, uh, both indigenous and, and non-indigenous, can learn from that and uh, adopt that into our practices. Um I, I really just started it, um, page two, but um, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really interesting and helpful, and I hope many of you join that conversation. Um, you can join for free just by signing up for that free weekly newsletter. Um, that gives you a free trial meeting of the book club. Um, and then you can join on a more permanent basis, again, by supporting on Patreon at the Lorex tier, which is $7 a month. Um, again, you know, roughly $2 an episode. Uh, hopefully that's not too bad a deal. And you also get other perks like early access to episodes. You can ask me questions and you can be in every meeting of the book club. August 23rd, as long as grass grows. Um, and then it's September, um, sometime in late December, September. I don't have the exact date set yet. We will be discussing Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, a science fiction classic about a near future, uh, California ravaged by climate change and, and other um, negative political consequences. Uh, it's a, a dark book in many ways, but there's hope in it too. And um, I'm really excited to discuss that with many of you as well. Uh, so yes, if you're interested in the book club, you can reach out to me with questions. You can go to DaytonMartindale.com slash book hyphen club to keep track of the dates. Uh, you can join the weekly newsletter or you can support on Patreon. These are all ways to get information about the book club. Um, but you probably didn't click play on this episode because of the book club. You probably clicked play because you were curious about the book of minds. So here is Philip Ball. Book of Minds. Uh, Philip, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Nice to join you. Yeah. Um, so 
you you're a science writer. You've written a lot of books about different topics in science, everything from water to quantum mechanics. Um, I'm interested how you got into uh, minds and consciousness, and kind of specifically, did you get into it coming at it more from a like a science angle or a philosophy angle or a mix of both? Um, and yes, how do you end up writing this book? Well, there, there was a very particular path that this one took that um, began actually with AI. So some years ago, I was asked by a science magazine if I would look into writing an article about the, the about some work that was trying to open up the black box of AI. So today's AI works pretty well uh, on the whole, but we aren't always quite sure how it's working or how it's thinking, if you like. And um, it was this was an article that you know tried to to get at that. Issue and I wanted to sort of think more broadly about that, about the kind of mind that AI seemed to be. But I ran into trouble finding folks working on AI who could talk to that issue in a broad way. And I kind of sat on this piece for a while and didn't quite know what to do with it and ended up not writing the article, but always sort of feeling that there was something there, something broader there to be excavated. And in particular, I was pointed in the direction of a an article that was written in 1984 by a computer scientist in the, at the University of Birmingham in England called Aaron Sloman. And his article was called The Structure of the Space of Possible Minds. And I really like this idea, um, the idea that there are a whole range of minds out there um, of which, you know, we're just one example. We humans. So other animals have have minds of a sort. What kinds of minds are they? They're not all you know, they're not necessarily going to be like ours. A.I., could be thought of as having a kind of mind and we can you know maybe talk a bit more about what that should mean but somehow he had the idea that all these minds could be located in this space this abstract space of some sort that was that had coordinates that sort of define the different qualities of mind. So one might be intelligence, one might be consciousness, one might be memory. And I, I I'd sat on this idea for a while and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And then in 2019, I was asked uh, to, to come as a visitor to Harvard Medical School for the summer, uh, which was fantastic. So I went over there and uh, as I started sort of looking around the place, you know, Harvard and MIT are real hotspots of research in cognition um, and AI and robotics and psychology and they're starting to talk to each other. And I suddenly realised uh, when I arrived that actually <laughs> what I, I hadn't written this article because it had to be a book. And it had to be a book that looked much more widely at what minds are um, and how to think about them. And, you know, the funny thing is that things kind of fall into place sometimes when this happens. I've, I went to visit um, someone at MIT in the media lab there. And I'd mentioned to him that I had written a piece recently about theories of consciousness. And he said, oh, OK, you're just the person we need to speak at this meeting we're having on animal cognition and animal communication. Um, so come and give a 10 minute talk about consciousness. <laughs> so I did that. And it was an amazing meeting. It was a fantastic meeting that brought together leading experts in animal cognition of, of, of all of all sorts. Um, so people working on dolphins, on primates, on birds, on octopuses. Um, and uh, it was a great place to learn very quickly, you know, what was known and what was being researched about animal cognition. And of course, this fitted perfectly with what I decided to do. And so the whole area of, you know, animal minds 
was kind of opened up for me at this meeting and I was able to speak to various people about that. So that's really where the book grew out of. And I started writing it while I was at Harvard. And uh, this is what it became, The Book of Minds. Yeah. So um, early on in the book, you define um, or you you take a a first stab, at least, at defining mind. Um, And basically what you come down is, is that any entity with the mind is what is an entity that there is something it is like to be that thing so if there's something it is like to be you or me or a bird or an octopus um then we have a mind and if there's if we don't think there's something it's like to be a rock for instance um then we wouldn't necessarily say that a rock has a mind but you you raise in this idea of the space of possible minds that there are you know traits that uh, you know, an AI might have intelligence to be good at chess, and that might be in the space of possible minds without giving it really a mind, if that makes sense. So so how do you, I guess, how do you even think about uh, which of these traits are actually important and relevant to having, you know, something that's like to, having something inner experience going on? Yeah, well, that that is a, a really difficult question that, you know, quite frankly, we don't know the answer to at the moment. Um, this this definition that I use of how, you know, what what is a mind? It's not a rigorous one. There is no rigorous definition. There's no scientific definition or philosophical definition that everyone agrees on. So this was a kind of rough and ready way of getting into the the subject. Um, so this notion that if if something if we're going to say that something genuinely has a mind, there is some kind of experience that that entity has. So, you know, I don't think, and I think most people working in computer science would agree, I don't think that my laptop, there's nothing it is like to be my laptop. It's a bunch of silicon circuits, and that's all. Um, Whereas, you know, if we talk about, certainly if we talk about, you know, a mouse or a bat or a fish, or maybe even, um, you know, a spider, maybe even a bacterium who knows you know there may be something it is like to be to be those entities uh but really what i wanted to do with this idea of a space of possible minds is to kind of get away from any notion of drawing a hard and fast barrier and saying everything on this side has a mind everything on this side doesn't um because i don't think that's how minds are i think they are matters of degree and there are you know, at the moment, uh, there are quite fierce arguments happening within biology about where you draw that line. There are some biologists who argue that we need to think about plants as having some kind of mind. Others say that perhaps everything that is alive has a kind of mind, almost by definition, that, you know, that's that's a part of what life is. And, and what, what I think the advantage of having a, a, this this notion of a space of possible minds gives you is that you don't have to worry too much about that. Everything can be put on there. You can put a brick in that space. It's probably at zero in every dimension <laughs> of mind, OK? But, you know, you can put it there. Um, a computer, I, I don't think it, as I say, I don't think any computers today have experience. So in a sense, they don't have minds, but they certainly do some things of the sort that minds do. They have a kind of intelligence. They can do computation. They can solve problems. Uh, so, you know, they have some of the attributes 
that this space of possible minds recognises, even if it's not a mind as such. And so we can start to make a comparison between anything that has a kind of you might say a computational, you might say a cognitive uh, ability of some sort. We can start to make this comparison without getting too bogged down in definitions of what a mind is and whether something does or doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. So maybe I, I, I want to get into, um, you know, plants and other forms of life later um, and, and your computer as well. But uh, maybe let's start with um, ourselves and other animals, um, which maybe have the types of minds that are connected to neurons and brains that we are most familiar with. Um, so one thing I I appreciate in your book is it, it, it walks this line between definitely, um, you know, acknowledging certain impressive and particular features of the human mind um, as, as, as are unique to, to that human mind, while also not just, you know, casting other animal minds as just sort of deficient versions of that human mind. Um, the, this, the space of possible mind kind of can give everything uh, its own space that is kind of equally or at least similarly interesting um, without, you know, having to cast it as, as just sort of a one-dimensional ladder of mind or something. So how did... How did you? Um, how did your your research on this book affect how you thought about kind of the the similarities, the differences between human minds and other animals? Well, that that was something that struck me quite quickly as I started to look into research that had been done on animal cognition. Um, how important it was to get away from this notion that has been around. I mean, for eons, really, sort of going back at least to the ancient Greeks that you know, somehow we are the pinnacle of mindedness and that we measure everything in comparison to how closely it approaches us. Um, I, you know, I think that this is this has certainly been a tendency until quite really quite recent times when we've started to be able to really get some handle on the kinds of experiences and cognitive abilities that other animals in particular have. And I think that has given people who research them a real appreciation that there is this diversity and that we're you know we're just one representative amongst many now you know i think it's fair to say and it's not a boast on the part of the the human species i think it's fair to say that we there is something special about the human mind but what is it because you know it's not in in a sense, it's not it's not problem solving ability. For example, other animals can solve impressive problems. It's not memory. Some other animals have absolutely prodigious memories. Um, you know, it's it, it's um, it, it, it's uh, it, it's not. I mean, you we can find examples in the animal kingdom of animal. You know, thing creatures that can do things that we're nowhere near. Birds. Some birds can navigate by the Earth's magnetic field. In some sense, they can, and we don't know quite what this means to the bird, but it's almost as though they can see on the sky, you know, a, a kind of an impression of the magnetic field that they can use to guide them. Um, so, you know, the, there are abilities that other animals have that we don't have, cognitive abilities. Um, so what is it that's special about the, the, the human mind, if anything? And I suspect that... Um, it's not just what I suspect. I think this is what sort of comes out from from behavioural studies that 
we seem in particular to have an amazing versatility, an amazing ability to generalise our cognitive abilities. So a lot of animals have highly advanced cognition in a very narrow range. They can do certain things very well, um, but other things, you know, really not at all. So there are some birds, for example, that have fantastic memories for where they've hidden food. But, you know, they're not able to generalize that memory to kind of, you know, memorize a scene that they've seen or to memorize a page of text or something. Um, whereas, you know, we we seem able to really use our cognitive abilities acro across different areas. We can generalize them. Added to that, we seem able and perhaps it's not independent from that. We we we, we have an incredible ability in, in communication and in social communication. And in particular, of course, we have language. And the uh, one idea that I explored in the book is that language, which only humans have in the sense that uh, we really mean language. So not just communication, but actually doing things that we do with language. Um, it doesn't seem to be simply about a kind of more sophisticated sort of communication that animals have for sending out warning signals or for, you know, giving mating calls or whatever. What we do with language is it's almost like a kind of mind projection. It, by using language, we are able to project our experience, to communicate our experience to one another. And we often do that with narrative and with story. If we tell a story to someone else, they can imagine themselves in that picture. And I think that's most probably something that a dog, for example, is unable to do. You know, even if you could somehow communicate something to, to a dog, I don't there's no indication that it would have the, the, the mental ability to, in a sense, project itself into different times, different places, different personalities. So we're really talking here about, I think, about the imagination. And, you know, one thing I suggest in the book is that maybe it's in our imaginative capacities that human beings seem to have something special and that language. In fact, I draw on the work of the linguist Daniel Dorr, who suggested that language is actually there for the education of the imagination. And I think that's a, a lovely but also a very resonant idea. Mm -hmm. I... Yeah, I, I do want to at least sort of raise a, a a slight pushback is maybe too strong, but just kind of um, that the I had a an interview a few weeks ago with um, David M. Pena Guzman, who wrote a book about animal dreaming. And one of the things we talked about um, was this idea of of whether other animals might have imagination. And I think, you know, even while you were talking, I'm sort of I'm I'm wondering in my mind like does a, a bee who does a waggle dance to show you know where the nectar is like do the other bees who see the waggle dance does anything happen in their minds to like put them in that location or when my dog sees a tennis ball does anything happen to to sort of put him outside or you know um and and so one of one of the sort of more uh simpler but interesting examples in, in that book about animal dreaming was a chimpanzee who who took kind of a picture of a banana on a page and pretended to eat it. Um, and just even, you know, it sounds not that remarkable, but um, Pena Guzman's argument was, was sort of that there's, there's a, a projection that needs to be done there of understanding that it's a representation of banana and that it's not a real banana and interacting with it. And I think um, 
that, that I think, which is true to what you say in the book, that all these things you're saying aren't necessarily like a a deep, deep line in the sand. Um, but I also agree with you that sort of um, there are, you know, particular capabilities of human language and imagination that so far as we can tell do do really um, seem to be unique and special. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree with all of that. I, I, I think, you know, none of none of these cognitive abilities that we have came out of nowhere, you know, and our, our imagination, such as it is, will have I think it's 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 very likely that we will be able to see echoes of that in certainly in close uh closely related species to us so yeah I totally agree and I think in particular you know it used to be thought for example that animals just inhabited a perpetual present they had no sense of the past no sense of the future I think there there's good evidence now that that is not the case and I mean dreaming is is actually one of them that you know there 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 have been studies that ha- have shown that when some animals I think it was rats maybe but I maybe it's the same applies to dogs I'm sure it does when they're asleep they seem to be activating patterns of mental activity that recapitulate things they've experienced recently. Um, you know, even to the extent of their sort of muscles twitching. And anyway, I guess anyone who's seen a dog sleep and, you know, make noises in their sleep, and you know, is, is, must be aware that they're experiencing something. And uh, it does seem that they, like us, during sleep, quite possibly have a kind of mental playback of you know what's happened maybe just what's happened during the day that is part of somehow the mind processing that information and there's also evidence that um that that animals can think ahead can imagine the future for example i mentioned um how some birds are very good at remembering where they've stored food there are some experiments done on scrub jays which uh, scrub jays are very uh, are one of the experts in this sort of food caching um ability as it's called <laughs> And so that, you know, they can have a fantastic memory for where they've uh, they've hidden everything and they hide it very kind of systematically. They seem to be conscious of, you know, whether they're being observed and whether other birds are likely to steal it and they make accommodation for that. Um, But but I think in particular, there was an experiment that showed that if they're allowed to hide uh, food for the next morning, and they know because they've been sort of trained uh, in this way to know that they there's a chance that they might end up being put in a cage where there's not going to be any food there, if you like, for breakfast the next morning. They'll choose to hide it in that cage rather than in any other. As if they're kind of saying, well, look, you know, I might end up in here. And if I do, I'm going to be hungry in the morning. So I'm going to need to have some food here. So, you know, clearly something is going on that involves an element of future planning that seems to involve not just something automated, but a kind of as though they are creating a future, as though they are imagining a future scenario in their minds that they're allowing for. So I absolutely agree. There are elements of what goes into human imagination that I think we can find in other animals too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, something you said at the beginning of that is that, um, you know, our, our mind capabilities don't come out of nowhere. They were all sort of evolved through processes that were shared uh with with many of these other creatures and there's a a section maybe halfway through your book um that uh, the sort of the title of the subsection is how minds began um and it's about at least how how 
um, how we, our best guess maybe, or the, I take it to be sort of the story you find most plausible um, about the origins of consciousness and subjective experience, at least on this planet. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, some people have different stories about where minds begin, which we can maybe get to later. Um, but what is, what is this story of, you know, a few hundred million years ago, early in animal life of how some people think minds began? Well, I mean, you know, it's certainly true that we, the, this is kind of uh, informed guesswork. Um, but uh, the the one idea is that um, it, it's really a story. This much is a story about the origin of nervous systems. And it seems quite likely that the nerve cells were um, were evolved in order to be able to transmit signals over long distances in through animal bodies so there's there's something that will have become necessary quite early on when uh, when uh, life became multicellular when it started when you know cells started to gather into larger bodies um that had to move around um uh, and they so they needed to coordinate limbs or or, or or you know some kind of body movements or something in order to to move through water um they also needed to uh start having sensory equipment to you know eyes for example to both to find food and to avoid predators um so these were two separate things that were needed by multicellular animals um, that, you know, you need a sensory sort of apparatus and you need to be able to coordinate movement. And there's no reason why those two things have to be done together. But um, what they what they do seem to need is coordination between different parts of the body. And so that's what nerves do. So they're, you know, long, thin cells that can send electrical impulses down them from one place to a distant place. So they're able to uh, allow t cells and tissues to coordinate their their activity. So this was the idea that, um, you know, the, the nervous systems uh, began this way. And eventually those two systems might have been quite separate to begin with but eventually they they were integrated so that what you sensed what the animal sensed was able to be transmitted instantly into some kind of action into some kind of movement or behavior um that was you know like uh, uh chasing after a prey or avoiding a predator or whatever um so this would have this seems to have happened you know, very, very early on in the evolution of larger animals. So before the Cambrian explosion, that was about uh, 540 million years ago. So we're, we're, we're looking further back than that, about sort of 600, 700 million years ago, when the, 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 the animals that existed there were more, they, they, some of them were a bit like sponges. They were very kind of simple. They didn't, you know, they, they, they didn't have well-formed, well-shaped bodies. Um, that was something that tended to come much more during the, the Cambrian era. Um, but they were able to move and coordinate in, in, in this way. What, um, what, what happened uh, around that time, it, it, it was back then, before the Cambrian, that what the, the 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 kind of evolutionary uh branch if you like that became vertebrates that became you know animals with backbones fish and reptiles and mammals and you know eventually us um diverged from the lineage that became mollusks 
such as octopuses and squid. So this was about 600 million years ago. And the common ancestor they shared was it it was probably something like a, a little sort of flat worm, a very simple creature with a very simple nervous system that would probably have been used for sensing and for movement. But we don't know to what extent those would have been integrated together. And what seems to have uh, have happened is that the those two kinds of nervous system that led to different ultimately to different kinds of mind that they, they, they evolved on separate branches so the kind of nervous system that we see in octopuses for example is very different to ours there are some similarities so there is some sort of evolution that was shared between them but in some ways it's it's uh, it's, it's very different i mean do you want shall i shall i say more about how octopuses differ uh yeah let's go for it Okay. Well, I mean, the 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 main uh, difference um, is that you know, uh, for, for us, we, we have a central brain that coordinates everything, and you know, in a sense, it sort of controls the body. The body gives it feedback as well and affects how the brain operates. But you know, the brain is kind of the the the, the control center, really. For octopuses, they do also have a kind of central brain in their in their head. It's a brain that looks very different to ours. It doesn't have these two hemispheres. It just has an, a, a large number, dozens of lobes that just do various things. And it's, it has a kind of hole in the middle where its esophagus goes through. So its feeding tube goes right through the middle of the head and through the brain. So it's a very weird, very different sort of anatomy. But most of the neurons in the octopus, so over 50% of them, are in the body. It has about as many neurons as a dog does. But, um, but you know, they're completely, they're distributed in this completely different way. And so a lot of those neurons are in the arms and they control what the arm does. And the arms have little clusters of neurons that are almost like sort of little proto-brains for each arm. And they seem to have a degree of autonomy. They can, if you like, they can think for themselves. They certainly seem to have their own sort of memory. So it seems that there are certainly times in, a, in an octopus's life where the arms are being controlled independently from the central brain it's as though they're they're sort of separate creatures that are just going about doing their own thing and the brain if you like and the eye of the octopus is just kind of watching you know the arms do their stuff not necessarily knowing what they're going to do but then you know at other times the brain does seem able to send top-down information to control what the whole body is doing so they have a very different way of organizing their their cognition and some researchers have suggested that they it's not even clear that this creates a kind of unified consciousness, that perhaps octopuses and squid have a more fragmented consciousness, maybe even two separate consciousnesses that sometimes kind of merge and sometimes go their own way. Whichever it is, it's very, very hard for us to imagine ourselves into the kind of experience that an octopus might have, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. it, it compared to how we might try to do that for a cat or for a mouse or something. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that, like, some combination of needing to move through the world and have a sense of your own body and, and sense, sense your surroundings. Um, how is what animals do different than for instance like a self-driving car or a robot that we like a Roomba 
I don't actually know how advanced Roombas are, but if you want to compare it even to something more advanced than a Roomba, go ahead. Um, but just because I think, um, like the story you're telling, like it's very intuitive to me that yes, an octopus looks like it's a thinking, feeling creature, and uh, <laughs> my computer doesn't. Um, but I sometimes I don't know whether that's just intuition uh, or or what it's actually grounded in. So so what it, what is different about um, synthetic systems? Yeah, well, I mean, our intuition is becoming an ever less reliable guide for this. You know, when you see some of the robots that now exist and they move, you know, in such an uncannily kind of human or animal like way, we start to imagine that there has to be something going on inside them. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, as I say, as far as we know, that there isn't. And that, that difference is what we think of as sentience really or as you know as as consciousness um so sentience is often the 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 word that would be preferred for simpler animals or simpler organisms generally um as a kind of feeling um you know a a, some some kind of experience and um why is that why is there that difference and it's a good question to which we don't know the answer because it would seem as though, as you say, it would be a perfectly good evolutionary answer to the question of, you know, how to coordinate movement and sensing and behaviour and so on, that you could make, you know, a nervous system that did all of that stuff without having any kind of inner experience. It just did the sort of processing in the same way as a computer does. So, you know, why add sentience or consciousness to that? And the, 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 the truth is, we just don't know. There is still a, d- a discussion about whether there's any adaptive benefit to consciousness at all. It's kind of hard to imagine how there wouldn't be, because it seems, you know, certainly such a central part of our experience. And now I think there are good reasons, at least to suspect that other animals have consciousness. It would be it's just a if you like, it's a more economical way of explaining their behaviour, you know, that it looks so much like some of the things that we do that it just seems kind of weird to imagine that, well, you know, they will just be doing this stuff that looks the same, but they're actually doing it in a completely different cognitive way that has no awareness. You know, at some point it's easier to just assume they they have the awareness that we have that is guiding the behaviour. But why is is really still an, an open question, you know, there there are some who say, well, it's something that just is going to emerge when you have this sort of integration of all these different um, uh, all these different functions that the nervous system has. You know, uh, uh, that that in a sense, where where it perhaps comes from is it's the result of opening up. Uh, opening uh, uh, opening up to the to the environment, if you like, to allowing information from the environment to come in and affect the internal state of that organism, and in particular to affect it in a way where the organism is is then coming up with a behaviour that is optimal or that it hopes is optimal for its survival. When it does that. What it's effectively doing is making some evaluation, if you like, some value judgment about the environment. You know, is this environment hurting me or is it a good place to be? Should I get out of here or should I go over there and investigate and see if I can find food? Those things 
the argument is that those those activities will be enhanced by some kind of awareness, some kind of experience that has a valence that is either, if you like, crudely speaking, good or bad. If it's, you know, if it feels good, <laughs> then we'll go on doing it. If it feels bad, we'll stop and try to find another solution. And, you know, but by creating that kind of sensation, the organism acquires a sort of motivation to behave in a certain way that something like a Roomba doesn't have. It's simply programmed, if you like, to do certain things and to make, you know, to, 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 to make decisions. Should I, you know, keep going in this direction or not? But it, it's, it, it's a much more programmatic thing than an organism that is in an environment where it just doesn't know what it's going to experience, what it's going to come up against. It doesn't know what its objective is, even other than perhaps to survive. But, you know, what does that mean? What do we have to do to, to survive? So it may be that experience, if you like, or sentience is something that comes about from a cognitive system that has to make those kinds of open-ended decisions and those value judgments about an environment that rather than saying, rather than everything coming down to a simple yes or no answer, it has to come down to something like, well, how do I feel about this? <laughs> do I feel good or bad? And if I, you know, how do I, how do I kind of intuit that I should behave you know that's a very anthropomorphic way of putting it but you see what I mean that a mm -hmm. sensation a feeling um, gives a much more versatile open-ended way of of of, be, of behaving and finding behaviors than we find in AI and computer systems mm -hmm. I think I was going to ask about this later but I think I'll ask now because I um, you know now I'm an environmental journalist but a few years ago, as an undergraduate, I studied astrophysics, and I was really into physics and math, and kind of uh, adapted this this view of the world in which um, there's there's fundamental particles and, and fields and forces, and these are ultimately what uh, these are uh, you know inviolable and ultimately like explain why anything does what it does. And so if you'd asked me a few years ago, um, I, I think I would have said something like, how can, how can consciousness even have a, you know, an evolutionary role? Like how can consciousness ultimately affect what the, the matter bits, I guess, are, are doing because they're just evolving according to physical laws. You know, what role could, uh, you know, what our thoughts and feelings play in that? Um, and I, I think I, uh, I've, I've grown, um, dissatisfied with that worldview. Um, but I'm also, uh, you know, I think it, it's hard to, hard to break. Um, so you kind of toward the end of the book have, have a chapter about free will and, and maybe this idea that actually our, our conscious decisions and choices do, impact what we do, which when I say it out loud, maybe sounds obvious, like, of course they do, because that's our lived experience that like, why else would we have them like what you're saying? Um, but I think maybe it's worth unpacking, like how, how can our sort of nebulous thoughts and feelings, uh, you know, impact seemingly um, harder and more, uh, you know, more structured matter? Yeah, um, 
and this this is a, an argument that I felt I, I did need to, to, to get into. I should say, first of all, that, you know, we talk about it. I mean, this term free will is the one that we've inherited from um, previous centuries of, you know, philosophy of mind. Um, which is unfortunate because it's a terrible term because, you know, it, 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 you, you have to ask, first of all, well, free of what? You know, we're, it, we're not obviously we're not totally free. We're not free from, you know, our past history. We're not free, actually, from the influence. It, it's very clear that our genes uh, are influence our behaviours. That's that's absolutely clear. So, you know, that's something we, we we're, we're kind of born with, if you like, to, to some extent. So, you know. In some sense, there's no, no no action is totally free, and then this notion of will is a kind of you know it sounds kind of mystical, like it's a a kind of a, a, you know mysterious power that operates and moves things around. You know, in addition to the physical forces that we that we know about, the four basic forces of of of, of nature. Um, so it it it. it invites misinterpretations but you know it's what we have and really what I'm talking about here is the capacity and this is what neuroscientists talk about you know these days the capacity for volitional decision making for um you know for for, for making de uh, uh, decisions that if you like didn't have to be that way and the the argument you you've talked about I mean you know the common objection to this as you say is that okay if we break everything you can break everything down into atoms and forces between them you know there's no free will in that um it, it's completely deterministic aside from sort of quantum randomness it's you know deterministic that you know if, if these atoms are in this configuration they're going to do x next you know they can't just suddenly decide for themselves to go off into a completely different way um so i i completely understand that argument but i don't think that the two are at all incompatible. And the key here is thinking about what causes something to happen. It's it's about causation. And I say in the book, there are now very good reasons, hard scientific reasons, to think that causation isn't something that just flows upwards from the atoms. It's something that can appear at different levels in a complex system, certainly a system as complex as we are, um, and that there can be more causation for things happening at higher levels than at lower levels. This is something that it, 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 it seems very clear now from studies of causation and the mathematics of complex systems, that it's something that can happen. And in a sense, we kind of know, as you say, we kind of know this is true already. You know, the idea of, well, how can the mind affect matter? How can mind move matter? Well, you know, I'm, I'm just moving, raising my teacup that I have here. And there it is. My mind has done it. Um, you, you know, and you, you could say, well, you know, what happened there was actually that the, uh, the you know, electrons in the atoms of your finger were repe repelling the electrons in the atoms of the coffee cup's handle. And so they had to. But what made, you know, what made those atoms do that? I mean, where is the causation in there? And you can say, well, let's look into your neurons and then you can, you know, look into the cell membranes where ions are coming through ion channels. And if you go far enough down, you've lost it. You've lost the question entirely. You've lost any sense of causation. You will never find it down there. You will only be able to tell a causative story about that process of me raising my coffee cup 
at the right level of the system. And that right level is the decision making circuits in you know, neural circuits in my brain. That's where we have to look. How, you know, how do they work? So that's really what I'm what I'm um, arguing for in the book, that if we are talking about decision making and volition, that's where we have to start. If we take it apart further into atoms, we've we've lost it. We've lost the question. It's you know, it's similar. I mean, it's it's it again. It's kind of trivial, but it's importantly trivial. You know, if you're talking about, well, you know, how did the the ball game that we saw at the weekend, you know, um, why why did you um, what why did it win? I mean, being British, I think more in terms of soccer. And, you know, if we we think, well, you know, why, why did that team beat the other team? If we try to get an atomic level quantum mechanical description of that process, it's not just that it's too complicated. It is that it is void of all causative, you know, explanatory potential. There is just none there at that level. We have to look at it. We have to ask that question at the right level. So that's really what I'm talking about um, as free will, that it's it, it's best understood as a neural process of decision making that we can ask. We can then ask questions about, you know, what are the what are the circuits in our mind that are involved in volition? How do they decide given a particular stimulus? How do they decide what to do? It's very clear if we look at animal behavior that um, there is a randomness to that. That, you know, for example, if you give an animal a, a, a stimulus that is identical as far as you can make it, the animal won't necessarily do the same thing each time. And, you know, determinists might say, yeah, yeah, but if we looked at the fine details, then we might find that this atom, you know, moved this way this time and that that way the other time. But the fact is that that level of detail is invisible, to the creature, it's invisible to the decision-making process. Evolution, you know, can't handle that level of graininess, so it's irrelevant to the problem. So there is, you know, a, a degree of randomness in behaviour that is part of what go part of what is drawn on when we uh, when, when we think about where volition comes from. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe gets at what um, you know, maybe another difference between life and uh, artificial systems we've created um, because, you, you know, it's, it's, we know how I, I keep using a Roomba, forgive me, but we know how a Roomba works. Um, or even, even if I don't know how my computer works, someone knows. Um, but you, you bring up in the book that kind of even one of the simplest nervous systems in the animal kingdom which has something like 200 neurons we still don't exactly even know how the feedback and, and interactions between those neurons work, um, that it's kind of a, a seemingly a higher level of complication. But what we, but what you, you said you started the, even the book, whole book idea about is that we don't even always understand everything that goes on within uh, current artificial intelligence. Um, there was a big article a few weeks ago, a discourse around, you know, some Google engineer, I think, thought that one of the Google AIs had achieved consciousness. Uh, but you, you and I think many people think this is pretty unlikely. Um, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, some of what, what you see as the differences um, between uh, artificial system, like your, your laptop and a, an octopus. Um, but why I want to maybe drill into it because 
because all of these questions that we're we're asking really do have ethical uh, strong ethical implications um i think you know if if an ai is <laughs> actually is can you know think and feel and have good you know pleasure and pain or or whatever else more complicated feelings whatever uh that <laughs> should anyway really change how we we would interact um and obviously that's true with animals and you know potentially plants or whatever as well but anyway um why why do you think it, it seems so unlikely that um, contemporary AI and even most likely near future AI along the same lines of, of what have how we build it now is so unlikely to, to actually have that that sentience? Well, I, I think I mean, first of all, I think it, we have to start by admitting that because we don't understand what consciousness is, let alone have good ways of looking for it in in animals, um, you know, that we, we have to allow some uncertainty <laughs> there. But, you know, having said that, I do feel absolutely confident um, that today's AI doesn't have sentience. And I, part of the reason for that is that as you say, we, we, I mean, we know how it works. We know what it's doing. And what it's doing is completely different from the way we work. That the, This um, AI that the Google engineer was uh, w- was uh, talking about, it, it's basically it's a kind of chatbot or it's a, a, a general sort of software to develop chatbots. So what it does is it just mines information out there, you know, on the World Wide Web, all the documents it can access to find most probable responses to any questions that we give it. And, you know, it's so efficient and so good at doing this that it can really sound pretty alarmingly convincing at times but that is all it is doing it's and and we know that that is all it's doing because that's how we built it uh so there is no reason to suspect that in that you know it 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 is basically just like looking up a, a filing system only you know just faster and uh and and with 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 more data so you know we don't imagine that somehow if we look up an answer in a filing system there has been some cog- you know some cognition in that filing cabinet has given us the answer it's just there and it's just been looked up um that is all the ai is doing in this case but it's just doing it extraordinarily well um so it's just a probabilistic process you know what's the most probable what's what what what's the most probable set of words i can the ai is kind of you know if you like saying to itself i can put together in response to this query it's a simple sort of input output thing and w- we know that there's no you know, real, if you like, real sort of intelligence, uh, deeper intelligence behind that because of some of the incredibly seemingly dumb things that systems like that still do. That, you know, occasionally, I mean, if you if you ask an AI like that to develop some text, to write some prose, you know, some of it is kind of weird and spooky and, you know, slightly sort of hallucinogenic in the, 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 the things it comes up with. But, you know, within that, we can see that there's no kind of sense of a coherent story, you know, of uh, that that we would have of how things should go. It just kind of drifts. It's just like a word soup that is, you know, vaguely coherent. And that's all we can hope for at the moment from these systems. And if they get better and better, 
you know, all the better. But that doesn't mean they're getting more, you know, they're getting closer and closer to sentience. They're just doing the same thing faster and with more data. So there's no reason to imagine that these systems are even going in the direction of sentience at the moment. It's not something that that anyone really seems to think will just fall out of a system once it's big enough, once that you stick enough transistors on the, the silicon chip. You're, you're going to, it, it seems likely that it's going to, if, if we're going to get anything like sentience from one of these systems, we're going to need to understand where, what, what consciousness is, first of all, and then to build it in. And there are theories, there are too many theories in a way for how human consciousness arises, but none of them are theories that are reflected in the architecture of today's computer circuits. Um, so that's really the basis of, of my confidence about this, that, you know, we're, we're, we're not, as far as I can see, AI isn't even heading in the right direction towards consciousness and towards human-like cognition. And some people, in fact, quite a lot of people now working on AI think that if it's got, to, if it's going to get better, and in particular, if it's going to display anything like the sort of common sense that we just take for granted, but that is notably lacking from AI at the moment, then we're probably going to have to build that in by hand rather than just imagining it's going to fall out of the complex circuitry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe we can um, last couple questions, uh, go back to, to living organisms. Um, you know, we, we told the story earlier about the evolution of the nervous system. And I, I do think that this is um, to many, maybe the most intuitive uh you know proxy for for consciousness that we have um but as you mentioned there are a lot of people who think consciousness might arise earlier there are some who would argue that it arises later um so can you uh maybe let's start with with earlier um can can you kind of walk us just through the different views people have about I guess either panpsychism or biopsychism would be the two terms. Uh, sort of consciousness is everywhere, or or consciousness is in all living things. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, you know, above that, there's a, another level, as we said, where some people think that plants might have a kind mm -hmm. of sentience, and the the idea there, and this relates to biopsychism. The idea there is is that. Uh, our, our own consciousness is it, it, it seems to arise somehow in a way we don't understand from electrical signaling between neurons. Now, electrical signaling isn't specific to neurons. Lots of cells, in fact, pretty much all cells really can can, uh, can create differences in electrical potential across their membranes by letting ions charge charged atoms in and out of the across the membrane. And they can communicate with each other that way. And this happens in tissues, in ordinary tissues. It happens in some of our tissues that they, there's electrical communication going on. I mean, there's electrical communication behind the heartbeat, for example. There are, there are coherent waves of electrical activity going through the heart, which cause muscle contraction. So it's a general property of cells. And, you know, there's I can certainly see the case, even though if I'm not yet entirely persuaded by it, that... Something like that, we know that it happens in plants, something like that perhaps could give rise to, you know, a kind of sentience, a kind of proto-feeling in plants. But, you know, going back even more, as I say, pretty much any cell can do this. Bacteria 
you know, are they let things go back and forth across their membrane. They can they can uh, communicate with one another. They often do that, uh, not so much electrically, but by uh, giving out chemical signals that, you know, uh, a bit like pheromones, really, that uh, the, the other bacteria can sense and respond to. So there's certainly communication there. But the idea of biopsychism is that, you know, even those the simplest systems like single cells, the simplest living systems that we know about, by virtue of having this interactive com- sort of um, communication, if you like, with its environment, that there is something there that is um, that, that gives rise to a kind of vague buzz of feeling uh, that is, you know, really the beginnings, the first glimmer of sentience. Um, so that's the, 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 the biopsychist argument that actually, in a sense, um, all experience, including our own consciousness, arises from kind of atoms of sentience, which are the, you know, which are individual cells with this, uh, this sort of interaction with its environment. But there are some who say, well, even that, you know, it, it, it still doesn't really explain where this sentience comes from. Maybe we just have to put it in as a kind of fundamental property of nature, of the physical world. So this is panpsychism, the idea that every entity has some degree of consciousness, even even atoms, that it's just a fundamental property of the universe in the same sense as electrical charges or as, you know, the gravitational forces. Um, And, you know, that's where we need to, to look for an explanation of it. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, this used to be a, 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 an idea that was sort of mooted, you know, um, 100, 200 years ago. Uh, people like Henri Bergson uh, had this this idea, the philosopher. And then it sort of fell out of favour and neuroscience came along and genetics came along. But now it's become kind of re- more respectable for philosophers, at least, to talk about panpsychism again. And there are some theories of consciousness that invoke something like panpsychism. Um, so I'm interested that it's, you know, it, 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 it's something that is uh, uh, at least tolerated now. Again, I don't know that I buy it. It seems to me to be sort of deferring the question indefinitely. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm interested that it's, it's being talked about again. Mm-hmm. I think that it is the fact that I, I don't like know how to refute it or really refute any of this, um, I think has kind of made me more open to any idea um, or just exploring it. But I think what's useful maybe about the space of possible minds is that maybe we can, even if we say here are things about bacteria, like maybe some of those correlate with mindedness um, that we also can say, but there are, you know, there, if, if there's something it is like to be bacteria, there's probably something different. It is like to be a, a parrot um, or a, a trout or something. Um, so I think, Gosh, we're we're approaching an hour, and I'm not going to get through all my questions. Um, but the you include, I think, kind of some more uh, speculative types of minds uh, that you explore. I think um, in one direction that might be whether you know we can talk of a whole forest or civilization or the Earth itself as having a mind. In another direction, you talk about you know what the mind of God might might mean or even look like. Um, you also have a chapter that's a lot about, um, you know, aliens, extraterrestrials and kind of what, what their minds might be like. 
I I really enjoyed all those sections, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, I think, um, you know, animals and AI are, are maybe kind of the more obvious places to look. What what was your your motivation for for kind of looking in uh, in in less expected places for mines? Well, I, I was interested to see how far we could push this because, you know, uh, uh, as we say, if uh, if we have a space of possible mines. We can put anything in there pretty much. Um, so, you know, let's see where we can take it. And I think in particular in thinking about aliens, um, it, it, it's I've long felt that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, as it's called, is kind of predicated on the idea that these aliens we're looking for are going to be a bit like us, only they're probably going to have better technology. And that's not impossible, but it seems to me to be a very limited way to be thinking about what minds might be that, you know, if they if they have evolved through Darwinian evolution and there's even an argument, you know, there's an argument about whether that is the only way for complex organisms, uh, complex entities that might be minded uh, to evolve. But, you know, if they have um, on a very different environment, there's there's a lot of chance involved in how evolution goes. You know, they might have ended up somewhere entirely different or you know, if there are general principles to Darwinian evolution, which there kind of are, you can see that there are, you know, that, that it finds the same solution at different times in different places because it just happens to be the best, you know, physical solution. So maybe there's some convergence. Maybe the, the alien minds evolved by Darwinian natural selection would actually share some similarities with ours. So I you know, wanted to talk about that, those possibilities, but I did want to try to create a bit more broad-mindedness about what minds you know, could be and what they might look like and how they might divide the universe up. There's this kind of automatic assumption, I think, very often amongst scientists, in particular uh, amongst physicists, that the laws of nature that we see and that we've deduced, I mean, we know that they apply pretty much everywhere in the universe, but that doesn't mean, I think, to say that all other intelligent entities will have formulated them in exactly the same way, will have mm. carved nature up at the same joints. Um, so let's, you know, try and be more open-minded about that and, uh, and, and not assume that, you know, we're looking for civilizations that do the same kinds of things as we do, uh, you know, but just with better technology. But it, it, looking even further afield, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought, well, this idea crops up the mind of God. You know, you, we hear it sort of casually used. It was famously casually used by Stephen Hawking in A Brief History of Time at the end. And, you know, physicists use it almost to sort of suggest, you know, the mind of God is is what created the laws of, 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 of physics. Um so I, th I wanted to ask, you know, what what can we say about that? And I, I guess I, I felt like it, it feels like a bit of a killjoy thing to say. But I think the only respectful way we can talk about that is to take seriously what theologians have said about what God is like. And, you know, often the God of monotheistic religions, but not even just necessarily that. And if we do that, then sadly, we have to get away from this kind of anthropomorphized God that, you know, 
decide sits around and decides to create the universe and you know does so in seven days and you know that that and that it according to the old testament is kind of jealous of other gods and you know it's it's this isn't really what the deepest thinkers certainly in the christian tradition and i think more generally have thought about as what you know a god actually is and I had to come to the conclusion that if we take seriously, you know, what what that theological position is, we can't really talk about the mind of God at all, the God, because that sort of God isn't the kind of thing that has minds. Minds have purposes in the universe. You know, they have reasons for for doing the things that they do. Those aren't things that we can talk about or think about when we if we think about something like the mind of God. So sadly, I think the mind of God is actually one of the few things I don't think I could find a place for in the space of possible minds. Mm -hmm. Well, I... We're we're at about an hour, so so I I just want to maybe have one more question if you got time. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. Is is just kind of what is so you've done all this research? There are all these people with different ideas of how minds arose, what consciousness is for. You have you know panpsychists, biopsychists, people who think animals alone are conscious. Uh, you know there are people we we didn't get into it, and I don't think we need to, but who I think would put you know, consciousness evolution even later, um, you know, even as as late as human language, uh, you know, some some philosophers might say that consciousness has yet to evolve. Uh it's all an illusion. Um but and then you, you also go through all these different theories about what it's for and what to you are kind of the the most promising directions for um like what are, what's the most promising research or directions or or philosophizing or you know neuroscienceizing that will help us understand more about this and help you know help us refine our best guesses like well, yeah i guess just what yeah what's the most promising directions of of ideas or research in the field to you after doing all this research well, I, I do think that the the dialogue that's now happening in very different areas between people working on animal cognition and AI and child psychology, I think that that is something that's relatively recent and that is becoming extremely fertile, in particular in helping us think about our own minds. What are, if you like, what are the algorithms that, you know, that our minds actually use? Um, but uh, I, in terms of... of understanding consciousness to be honest i don't see uh any imminent breakthrough <laughs> in that area um uh, you know a bit, and i think part of the reason for that is that um it's so hard to bring those theories into um the arena of testable ideas where testable in the sense of being falsifiable you know that that it, it, it's it, it's very hard for any of those theories to sort of say, well, you know, we predict X and if X is not the case experimentally, then this theory is wrong. 
I don't think I don't think there's a single theory of consciousness where that has yet happened. And, you know, even if they make a prediction and it's not true, it seems that what generally happens is people say, well, there's a bit of wiggle room here. And, you know, maybe it's we just have to tweak the theory a bit. So I I think we're going to be waiting for some time before we can, if ever, start to rule out theories of consciousness and narrow down the field. But I think that one of the things that is that I do see actually starting to happen there is to have a a a more nuanced view of what consciousness is because i think that what we'll actually find is that in this space of possible minds consciousness isn't just a single axis a single you know dimension or variable that actually there are there's more than one mode of consciousness um, and already animal researchers are starting to suggest this, that what that might what consciousness might mean for, you know, a, a, a rabbit or certainly for a, a bird could be something quite different to what it means for us. It's not just that the, the bird has, you know, some of it, but less than us. It actually has a different kind of mode of consciousness in some respects. And I I think we're going to have to start taking seriously the possibility that actually the machines we're making may eventually have a kind of consciousness, but that it won't necessarily be just like ours and maybe not like ours at all. So I think that this 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 kind of broadening of 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 what of how we think about consciousness and, you know, stopping thinking of it as a single thing and thinking of it as perhaps itself a multidimensional entity or property i think that that's already starting to happen and i think that maybe that will be more productive in helping us think about consciousness just as we do just as i've tried to do about minds generally rather than saying you know either something has a mind or it doesn't we might start to be able to say well it has this kind of attribute of consciousness but maybe not so much this one and so you know we'll start to see that the question of is x conscious or not is actually not the right question. It's we can break it down into smaller questions that we can make progress on. Well, yeah, thanks for that. I think that's a a useful answer. Um, and is there anything else that you want to add about any of this that we've missed? <laughs> you covered the book pretty comprehensively, <laughs> actually, Dave. And so I don't think. Uh, no, I can't. Can't immediately think of anything. Well. Uh, listeners, I promise there is a lot more in the book um, on all of this. This was, I think, a nice taste of of most of what's in there, though. Um, so, yeah, the book is The Book of Minds by Philip Ball. Uh, I'll put a link in the episode description. And Philip, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Um, I want to add two quick notes on that conversation. Uh, the first is that the creature with um, 200 neurons that I referred to is C. elegans, a tiny roundworm that actually has 302 neurons. So my apologies to C. elegans for the undercount. Um, and the second note I wanted to make is just about, um, you know, that discussion of human language and imaginative capacity Um I know non-human capacity for language was something that came up in uh, my previous solo episode about Talk to Me by T.C. Boyle, where we talked about chimpanzees and sign language. Um, and and I think my own instincts are, are always to um, 
to be skeptical of, of anyone claiming a, a major difference between humans and, and non-human animals because so often the people who, who claim those differences end up getting proven wrong um, and because sometimes those differences are, are used to justify oppression, um, which makes you skeptical. But on the other hand, I will say, you know, um, humans are allowed to be special in some ways. Just like if I think chimpanzees are special or if I think, you know, the mantis shrimp is special or a particular plant is special. Um, I'm, you know, you're, you're allowed to think there are special things about humans too. Um, and maybe one of those special things is the, the degree to which our, our language and imaginative capacities might be, um, you know, be able to let us pretend to be Hamlet or, or tell certain types of stories that other animals might not have. Um, but, you know, with the caution that there's much we don't understand about other animal communication um, and maybe we'll, we'll be proven to be right, maybe we'll be proven wrong, maybe we'll never know. Um, I don't know, but, but I guess just the ideas I shared there and I think many of the ideas Philip shared, I find very intriguing. I don't know if they're right. I don't know if they're wrong. Like I said, consciousness is in many ways a, a, you know, a new and difficult field as Philip himself um, talked about as well. Um, but I just think it's all really important and worthwhile to think about. Um, so thank you for thinking about this with me. Feel free to send any any comments uh, or thoughts my way. Um, you can find me at Twitter at Dayton R. Martinde. Uh, the, if you don't know how to spell that, I'll put a link in the episode description. Um, yeah, and if you join my free weekly newsletter, you can email me back. If you like this episode, send it to a friend, post it on social media, um, and, you know, if you think it was worth a dollar or two, consider supporting this podcast financially on Patreon, but no pressure. Uh, hope you have a good day. <laughs>